uh, good morning also to all those who have joined us online. As, as most of you are aware, the pastor is out of town, and so he asked me to fill in for him. Um, as I reflect, it's kind of been a while since I've spoken here. COVID's taken its toll over the past couple years for all of us, I think, and we're all isolated from each other. And that's put a strain not just on our relationships, but to, on our personal psyche as well. Um, I was talking to my son, Rob, yesterday. He's a financial advisor, and he mentioned a potential client that he spoke to over the phone this past week. And he offered to get together with this client, and uh, with her and her husband. And her first question was, in person? And, and thinking she was nervous, because everybody's been nervous these past two years, uh, he said, listen, we can do this in person, or we can do it online via Zoom. However, she responded and said that she preferred to meet in person. And she told him, she said, as people, we've got to get back together. This isolation is killing us. That's pretty much her perspective. People are made to live in community, working and fellowshipping together. And that's why this book that we're studying is so important. So let's pray as we open God's word. Father, we do thank you for just being there always, no matter what our situation. I pray that as we gather together, that you would open our hearts to the ministry of your spirit, open my heart and my lips to speak through your spirit to, for all of us, and help us all to be students of your word as we dive into this book. So, turn in your Bibles to the book of Naomi, chapter 1. <laughs> now, if you're looking in your index, that's going to be spelled R-U-T-H. And it's, it's the book of Ruth. We often focus on Ruth when we study this book as a, the primary character of the book, but it's really what I would call a tale of two women, which is what I would entitle this, this particular message. Back in the early 2000s, I had just graduated from St. Mary's Seminary and University when Nyack College, which I had gone to many, many years ago, um, asked me to teach a biblical studies class on Ruth and Esther in their summer school program in Washington, D.C. Now, I had gone to St. Mary's for this very purpose. I wanted to teach Bible. And when they told me they needed me to teach these two books, I actually did pause for a couple seconds. You see, my focus had always been on the New Testament. And although I had studied both the Old and New Testament in order to graduate from, from seminary, um, I really had a focus on the, on the New Testament as opposed to the Old. And these books are from the Jewish Scriptures, or from what we call the Old Testament. Nowadays, we do call it the Jewish Scriptures uh, more and more. And that means it would require a bit of work. And they're relatively short books. I mean, Ruth is only four chapters. So that means that to teach a full semester would require diving into a really deep, and that I wasn't quite sure how I was going to handle that. Well, secondly, it's probably a bit shameful on my part, but I've always viewed these books as secondary. Um, they're kind of the stories. They're nice stories. We read them. We listen to them and say, yeah, look, you know, look what God's done for that, those people. But we kind of favor th books that are more theologically rich, like the law, or that we think are theologically rich, like the law or the prophets or the Psalms. And, of course, I had read these books, but they aren't in what I would call my wheelhouse. Well, I couldn't have been more wrong with this assumption. Ruth is rich in understanding how God takes us from despair 
to redemption, from isolation to community, it shows us how even when things look the darkest, God is still there, still working with his people for the benefit of others, working through people like you and me. Well, I taught the class and probably learned at least as much as my students, if not more. Um, Naomi is actually the main character in the story. The book begins and ends with Naomi, not Ruth. Ruth's part of the story is important. She is a key player. She is, after all, the ancestor of King David. And it's Ruth who is identified in Jesus' ancestry. And the book does bear her name. So I'm not saying it's not important, but Naomi is too. And that's why it's a tale of two women. But Ruth's story unfolds in the light of the life of another, Naomi. And apart from Naomi, we would never encounter Ruth or King David or, or many others in the scriptures. We might encounter somebody else who's important, but this story is important for us to understand how God works in Israel and how he works in your life and mine. You see, very often we do play an important role in the lives of others and even in their effects on future generations. Yet our role is often unseen and unrecognized. Sometimes it even seems insignificant, particularly to us. And sometimes it seems like the world is against us. We have bad luck or bad karma or whatever you want to call it. Things just are not going the way we want them to go and the way we'd like to see things happen. But when we labor for God in Christ and labor in the work of God, often in times of trial and pain, we may be impacting people more than we know. And, and that is the story that unfurls in the book of Ruth, a story in four acts, as Trish Barrett mentioned to me the other uh, few, few weeks ago, um, that moves us from despair to rejoicing. This book is a tale of two women. So one of the key issues in reading this story is to understand the role of both of these women. And if you watch the video that the pastor posted, it does identify Boaz as a third major character, but I see him more as a support character for Naomi and Ruth. So the pastor covered the first part of chapter one last week. And today I'm gonna to cover the rest of that. But in order to understand this, what I want you to do is stay in the book of Ruth, but I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to the book of Numbers and look at a story, look at this story from a bit of a broader perspective. The story doesn't begin with Ruth and Naomi. It begins in the Exodus and Israel's wandering in the wilderness before Israel even entered the promised land. And so I'm going to go back to Numbers, 20, Numbers chapter 22 to 24 and just kind of briefly summarize what's going on here. Ruth's story begins with another's. That's the story of Balaam, the prophet who started well but ended up very poorly. Most of us know Balaam through a story of what appears to be his donkey talking to him and rebuking him. And of course, Balaam discovers later it's really a divine messenger. So in determining the actual time of these events, well, it's kind of hard sometimes, but it's probably a few hundred years prior to the story of Ruth. So in the book of Numbers, Israel was camped in the land of Moab at, before they entered the promised land. And that's a land that's east of Israel. And if you look at the map, what I have is a, a, a picture of Israel. And you can see the kingdom of Moab is that purple blotch there, kind of on the, um, 
lower right-hand side across the Dead Sea. Now, Israel is not a big country. It's about the size of New Jersey. So we're not looking at huge distances here. To go from Bethlehem into the land of Moab is about a 45-mile walk for them. I almost said drive. (laughs) So it'd be like me going up to Pennsylvania to visit my son. But for them, of course, it probably took a few days, but it's not a huge distance. Israel was camped in this land, and since Israel had already defeated two other countries, uh, the Amorites and King Og of Bashan, Balak, the king of the Moabites, was kind of nervous, and he sent the elders of the Moabites to a prophet named Balaam to hire him to curse the Israelites before they engaged them in battle. Now, Balaam initially refused, but after a few more visits by Balak's emissaries, he went with them and stated that he would only say what God told him to say. So the next day, he saddled his donkey and he left with them. And the next section of that story is pretty odd. That's where we get the donkey. It begins with God becoming angry after Balaam left the night before he had told him to leave with these people. And we're not told why God's angry, but perhaps Balaam may have seen this as an opportunity for gain and believed that God actually did want him to curse Israel, which would have been profitable to Balaam, but not to Israel. But that wasn't God's intent. So God sent an angel out to meet Balaam on the road and to act as his adversary. Now, Balaam didn't see anybody, but the donkey did and turned aside into a field. Balaam struck the animal to turn him back onto the road, and three times the donkey balks, injuring Balaam and finally just laying down. Well, Balaam starts cursing the donkey, and the donkey turns and actually speaks to Balaam. Now, of course, it's it's the angel speaking through the donkey, and you've listened to this, and it sounds almost like a fable, but this is the angel speaking through the animal, in order to open Balaam's eyes. And he says, well, why are you doing this? And that's when Balaam's eyes are opened. He sees the divine messenger. Now, if you're an animal rights advocate or simply somebody that's halfway humane, you're probably appalled by Balaam. Balaam's behavior, and rightly so by our standards, is horrible. And you wonder why God would use such a person. He's just not a nice guy by any definition. But as the story unfolds, the angel rebukes Balaam for his cruelty, stating that to come out that he had come out against Balaam because of Balaam's perversity. The angel, the messenger from God, told Balaam that if the donkey had continued on, Balaam would have been killed. So the donkey turning away actually saved Balaam's life and was beaten for it. Well, very often it's easy to misconstrue the intentions of others, and we assume things about them based on our own perceptions. What Balaam assumed was evil on the part of this animal was actually meant to save him. The donkey simply saw things that Balaam couldn't see. And that's why it's important for us to hear others, no matter how, what the situation, and no matter how we're seeing the situation, and understand how they perceive the world. Perhaps their insight's better than ours. Well, the, Balaam te- the angel tells Balaam to go with the men from Balak, but reminds him he can only... S- say what the angel, who's God's agent, tells him to say. And as the story unfolds, Balaam meets with Balak and blesses Israel four times from three different locations. In his first oracle, Balaam tells Balak, how can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crag I see him, from the hills 
I behold him. Here is a people living alone and not reckoning itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the dust clouds of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. You know, Balaam's not that far from us as we might perceive. Often we're not just, we're simply not willing to hear what God is telling us and we make assumptions of what he wants us to do. We don't see others as God's people, people whom he desires to save. Seeing people as God sees them is key to being a member of God's kingdom. If I only see my neighbor as the guy that refuses to clean up after his dog, or the guy that is always arguing with his wife or her husband, or whose yard is always a mess, then we cannot see the need that they may have or the concern that God has for them. If there's one lesson to learn from that, this encounter of Balaam, it's that we need to learn to see as God sees, seeing others as he wants, to see, wants us to see them. And this may come through an oracle, or through someone or something that we treat with contempt, like the donkey. But learning to see each other rightly is what builds community. So seeing each other rightly is critical. In his final oracle, Balaam does say something that really gives us a hint of what may be to come and why God wants to bless Israel. The oracle of Balaam, son of Baor, the oracle of the man whose eye is clear. The oracle of, of one who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. You have to wonder if in his vision, Balaam caught a glimpse of what God's plan was that would unfurl through Israel and ultimately through Christ. Well, if the story had ended there, Balaam would have been a hero, but it doesn't. We're told later in Numbers 31 that Balaam gave Balak some advice that would haunt Israel for generations, spreading to other nations and tribes as well. Essentially, Balaam told Balak, if you really want to defeat Israel and bring their God... If you really want to defeat Israel, have your women, the Moabite women, marry into Israel and bring their gods with them. This will invite the people to sacrifice and bow down to other gods. And this happened to Israel after Balaam left. The women of Moab came in, had sexual relations with the Israelites, and as a consequence, Israel yoked itself to a different god, Baal at Peor, bringing God's wrath on the community in the form of a plague. Now, this was only... Uh, resolved through the intervention of Phineas when Phineas managed to stop the plague. You know, in the New Testament, we do get a review of Balak. Second uh, Peter 2, 14 to 15, Balak said that, says that Balaam is said to have loved the wages of doing wrong. In Jude 11, Balak's error was for the sake of gain, and in Revelation 2, 14, his sin is identified as teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel. And for the church of Pergamon, who lived where Satan's throne is, that sin was that, what, was that they were participating in pagan feasts, eating food sacrificed to idols, and practicing sexual immorality. Well, as a consequence of Balaam's sin, the intermarriage with the Moabites and other nations was forbidden in Israel. The fear was that bringing such foreign women into the Israelite community would corrupt them taking them away from the true worship of God. And that's where Balaam's story intersects with the story of Ruth, because Ruth was a Moabite. 
Well, often in times of trial, we do seek an immediate solution to our problem out of desperation, looking for a quick solution and not really looking towards the long-term consequences of what our actions may, may imply. And I think that's the case with Elimelech. When Elimelech, Naomi's husband, went to Moab, the situation was pretty dire. There was a famine in Israel, and they needed food. Famines can be brutal even today, <clears throat> but more so in ancient times. Looking back at just a couple hundred years, famines in some areas killed anywhere from 25 to 50% of the population. They were devastating, and in ancient times, it's even worse. They involved crop failure and diseases and death of farm animals, often extreme competition for food and water, and people often did migrate during those times. Abraham left and went to Egypt during a famine. So when Naomi's husband Elimelech left the country, left Israel for the country of Moab during the famine, things were probably pretty desperate. Desperate enough to risk the faith of his family by putting them under the influence of worshipers of another god. And that he would allow his sons to marry Moabite women probably speaks of his own lack of faith. And this takes place during a time when marriages were arranged. And Elimelech could have probably arranged these marriages so that he would keep his family alive and prosperous during those times when, Israelite was, when Israel was suffering from the famine. And as we heard last week, this didn't quite work out the way expected. Rather than suffering with them, Elimelech chose to abandon his people, God's people, and move to a country with another God. And he stayed there for 10 years. Now, a normal famine, even an extreme famine, only lasts three to four years. So Elimelech stayed and had pretty much settled into the land of Moab permanently with all of its influence, particularly with a different understanding of God and a different way of worship. Now, we're not told how Elimelech and his two sons died, but it's clear his plan for survival didn't come to fruition. The... Uh, and allowing and arranging marriages for your sons outside of Israel was probably something that would not commend them to God and to other Israelites. In the end, Elimelech had taken his family out of the covenant community, out of the place where there was faith in God, without trusting God to see them through the famine. And as a result, Naomi lost everything. She lost her husband, her sons, her heritage. She had no relatives in Moab, and she had no future since what she might have been left to her, would be passed through her sons. And they're now gone. So she has nothing. So her decision to return to Israel really was one of survival. She had to return and really put herself in the hands of her relatives that would provide for her basic needs for shelter and for the end of her life. Well, this also explains Naomi's decision to send her daughter-in-laws back to their families Moabite women coming into Israel would have been viewed pretty uh, suspiciously, and they would have been isolated and ostracized by the community. They would have been stigmatized as those Moabite women, um, seen as idolaters and corruptors of the community. And that's why Naomi moved to return them to their families, to their mother's houses, so that they could marry into their own culture and avoid an uncomfortable situation, uncomfortable for both them and Naomi. And as we heard last week, after some resistance, Orpah, one of the daughter-in-laws, complied and returned home. Ruth refused, though, and instead 
Ruth makes that well-known declaration in Ruth 1, 16-17. And Ruth said, Don't press me to leave you or turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me, and more as well, if even death parts me from you. These words we often hear at weddings, or at least we did when I was growing up. I don't know whether we do anymore. I haven't heard it too much recently. So it may seem strange to hear these words spoken not to a wedding partner, but to a mother-in-law. What then is Ruth actually saying? Well, listen closely to the words she says. Do not press me to leave you or turn back from following you. During their time in Moab, it's apparent that Naomi had not lost faith in God, the God of Israel, despite the trials she faced. When she tells her daughters to return to their father's house, she's commending them to the Lord. So she still believes in the Lord, even while believing that the Lord has turned against her. And her faith, while in Moab, did affect Ruth. Ruth knew that returning to her family meant a return to paganism, to the worship of Chemosh and other gods. Moabites were polytheists, so they worshiped multiple gods. And the Bible rebukes Solomon for bringing this type of worship into Israel. Ruth had probably learned about Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the God we worship today through Christ, through Naomi, through the daily interaction that she had with her as part of the household. She had adopted this God by being part of the family, and her faith had grown over time. For Ruth, going back to the gods of Moab simply was not something she could accept. For her, poverty was better than idolatry, and the worship of the true God was more important than the trials she had faced or would face in this world. Well, today, we live in a world where we're also confronted by multiple gods. There are, of course, many religions out there that people adopt. Some are polytheistic, some are monotheistic, big words. (laughs) Some are atheist. But the gods of the modern age are those things that we can't live without. And I don't mean food and shelter. What I mean is today we are dominated by greed and the desire for more and more things in this life. We're dominated by the internet and our need to be included even in things that aren't good for us. And we're dominated by politics and the political posturing of people who vie for our attention on all sides. We accept what people say out of hand without ever examining the truth. But truth matters, and the challenge that confronts us, and it's a challenge that confronts us every day. For followers of Jesus and the God of Israel, we have to serve another king and another Messiah who will see us through the best and worst that life has to offer us. Like Ruth, there's no going back to Moab. To do so was to integrate herself into a society she could no longer accept, and from a purely human standpoint, to go back would have been the easy path. It would have meant a new marriage into that culture. At least in some respects, it would have provided her with security. But in the face of that choice, when confronted with a choice between faith and the ways of the world, Ruth tells Naomi, do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. I think in some respects, Ruth's faith was dependent on Naomi, and she knew it. Uh, We all need mentors. We all need people who we can share with. And considering how family works 
worked in ancient times and how women of a household worked together in the daily task of life and survival, Naomi had been Ruth's mentor in the faith. Verses 16 and 17 continue, Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me, and even more as well, if even death parts me from you. What Ruth is saying here is that she would no longer be a Moabite. Ruth is making a total and final commitment, not just to support Naomi, but to become an Israelite, a member of God's people. For Ruth, as I said before, there's no return to the old life. Commitment to the God of the Bible means a total commitment of everything that she was and everything that she would be. Despite the poverty, despite being an outsider, despite the risk of being stigmatized by the people, and despite entering into an unknown land and future, Ruth was going to follow the God of Israel, the true God. And despite the obstacles, she would become an Israelite. And that would only happen if she followed Naomi back to Canaan. You know, in the book of Romans, Gentile believers in Jesus had separated themselves from the Jews of Rome due to a very complicated social situation and formed their own meeting groups and homes. We often hear about the home churches. By doing so, they were surrounded by pagan influences and political pressure to sacrifice to Rome. Yet they did believe themselves to be saved, and they were followers of Jesus. Well, Paul poses a question to them. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? His answer is an emphatic, God forbid, or as Mike Gorman used to translate it, what are you, crazy? Ruth was faced with the same type of situation. For Ruth, the final answer was the same as Paul's. Having given herself to righteousness, there's no going back. She would live and die a follower of Yahweh, Israel's God, no matter what life brought. She would follow Naomi and Naomi's God to the grave. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that famous Christian martyr of the 20th century, stated it clearly for us as Christians in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When we commit ourselves to God, we're turning our lives over to him. Commitment to Christ is not a matter of negotiation and compromise. And you can't be a part-time believer in Jesus or a Christian when it's convenient. Like Ruth, our commitment to Christ means being willing to follow God in good times and bad. It means being willing to follow Christ, sometimes into places that aren't comfortable. And it means that whatever people think about us, whether we're accepted or rejected, or if people believe we're disrupting their normal lives by being involved with them, our task is to follow Christ. That means being a stranger in a strange land, very often, even if that strange land is right next door to you. It means showing love and compassion to those who may not even want our help. I think there's many Naomi's in her life. Ruth would live and die a follower of God, of the God of Israel, knowing her task was to support Naomi, even if she was viewed with suspicion by the other Israelites. And that is our task as well. No matter where we are, and no matter who, there is, who those people are around us, we need to follow Christ. And in following Christ, we need to see the world as he sees it and do the work that he has for us. Well, this chapter ends on a pretty bitter note. As they arrived back at Bethlehem from Moab, the text says the town was stirred 
because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now, we can speculate as to why they're asking this question. You know, maybe there's gossip going around and Naomi's being stigmatized because she's bringing a Moabite woman into the community. But I think based on Naomi's response, that Naomi's condition is so destitute and she's so beat down, she's essentially unrecognizable. Bent, destroyed, broken, she's a picture of one who has lost everything in life. And you know, such events change people. So I read this as Naomi returning to Israel simply to die. And I think her response in verse 20 bears this out. Naomi responds, call me no longer Naomi, call me Mara. Mara means bitter. When you hear Naomi's complaint, she's blaming God for her condition and the calamity that she's experienced. She believes that God is at enmity with her, that he's her enemy. And three times she blames God for this state. She says, the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. That is God's brought I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. God's taken everything from me, and I'm destitute. The Lord has dealt harshly with me, and the Almighty, Shaddai, has brought calamity upon me. God has become my adversary. And that's why last week the pastor alluded to this book as a female version of the book of Job. It's a book of, that testifies to suffering. Naomi's bitterness is not so much against life, but it's against God himself. She sees God as her enemy. And as she sees it, God has done this to her. She's lost her family, her life, her reputation. Nothing is left for Naomi. And we would probably feel the same way. Anyone who has lost and everything, whether family or finances or health or whatever, struggles with why God would let this happen. In his journey, uh, in the aftermath of his wife Joy's death from cancer, it's published as a grief observed, C.S. Lewis describes how he felt with, with his loss of his wife. At his lowest point, he never stopped believing in God. He always believed himself to be a Christian and follower of Christ. But in his journal... He wrote that he had come to view God as a monster who cared little about him. And the thing that brought him out of that really was when he realized that his wife, Joy, would never have accepted such an attitude. So he gradually came back and settled into his faith again. When we go through times of trial and times of pain, our, often our perspective on God does change. We're wondering why this is happening to us. And when we look into the darkness of our lives and get no response, we do wonder why and if that pain will ever end. I think we were wondering about that COVID that way for a long time as to whether it would ever end. I don't think God minds being challenged in times of grief and pain and bitterness. And there are times where it does seem to be silent, allowing life to crush us. And we just don't know what is going on. Often, God's an easy target for our pain. But what is important is that we're willing to hear him when he does speak. Well, I referred earlier to Trish Barrett's approach to this book as a, a story or a play in four acts. And we've come to the end of Act 1 with a summary that simply says, In this way, Naomi returned from the country of Moab. She returned with her, her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the Moabite. Naomi is bereft, broken, stigmatized, pitied, and not one who 
who you probably would feel comfortable being around. And she's followed by one who many would see as dangerous to the community. But then, almost as an afterthought, the author tells us they arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Well, for Israel, the famine's over. And perhaps it's ending for Naomi and Ruth as well. And we'll see that as we progress. Here at Lansdowne Alliance, we're a community of of those who have faith in the God of Abraham and who are followers of Jesus Christ. We seek to be a community where all are welcome and where people can experience the life of God in community. And we invite you to join us, whether in person or online, preferably in person. People do need each other, and we all contribute to each other, whether we're Ruth's or whether we're Naomi's. We need to return to the church, the Church of Christ, where we can see God working among us, among the community. So if you're not currently attending a fellowship, we invite you to join us here as we seek the life that God has for us in Christ. If you have a home church and you haven't attended due to the pandemic or some other reason, I'd encourage you to return there as soon as you feel comfortable and that you're able. But as this story unfolds, we're going to see a community pull together and we'll see how the community of God works and how each one of us needs the other. And that was true of Ruth and Naomi, and it's true for us. This is a tale of two women, one who came in faith and whose faith develops over time, demonstrating a full commitment to God. Another one who has faith, but is totally broken. But God is not done with either of these two women, and his plan will unfold in the next three chapters, in the next three acts of this drama, through the labors of Ruth and others. So stay tuned for the rest of the story over the next few weeks. I don't know what trials you've been facing. Um, Everybody has them. Maybe you've been isolated too long from those you care about. Maybe you've lost somebody dear to you, and like Naomi, you're broken and empty. Like Ruth, you may be in a situation that's totally foreign to you. And perhaps you're new to the faith of Jesus Christ and have no idea where this is going to lead you. I can tell you, whatever your state, God is there. He's not done with you, and he will be with you in all circumstances. And he'll be with you at the end of the journey as well. And we're going to see that as we progress through this series. If you do have an immediate need, and if you need to talk to someone, we're here for you, and you can talk to us after the service. But next week, we'll continue with the rest of the story. Let's pray. Father God, we do know that you are always there in all circumstances, whether for good or for bad. We know that often you've placed us in dire straits and that we need you and need to know that you are there with us. Lord, you were there with Naomi, even if she didn't hear you. And you were there with Ruth as she enters into a strange environment. Lord, be with us as we continue and as we close the service. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we close this part of the service, I'd like us to do something different. We have kind of a, a benediction that we've been going through, but I'd like to do a different one for this one. We're covering the books from the Jewish scripture, or a book from the Jewish scripture, and I want to close this service with a Jewish confession of faith from the law and from the scriptures. And it's a confession that we find in both Jesus' teachings and elsewhere in the New Testament. It's based on the Shema. Jesus presents this as a summary of the law, as the greatest of the commandments. 
And he then follows it by a second. Scott McKnight calls this the Jesus Creed. And I think we'll see this revealed as we go through the book of Ruth. So let's say it together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Go in peace.